0: Uh, if you know me, you know I like to be funny, and I, I, I often open up my uh, sermons on a Sunday with something funny. Not this week. I looked out, I decided not to do it, and I can guarantee you you're not going to find it funny. I'm opening with a quick talk on economics. Um, I was reading recently something that was very interesting. Someone was talking about, in today's modern, massive economics, what drives the economy more? Is it really supply and demand, or is it bare versus bold, a sense of confidence in fear. So it goes as that for investors, consumers, do they get spooked like deer? They run off. They don't build an economy for tomorrow. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So consumers get nervous. They think, oh, I heard that December is going to be rough, so I better not spend now. And the restaurants and, and businesses, places that they go to, uh, these begin to suffer. So then they have no money to spend. And then it just eventually trickles back home. And I think probably because it's so complicated to understand how it works. It takes geniuses to think about global economics. Let's just for ourselves today, we're gonna do ancient economics, so much easier. If you're an ancient grain grower in the Old Testament uh, and you heard a rumor that people are saying next year is gonna have severe heat and drought, you would have the store of grain that you were gonna sow in your fields. You may, out of nervousness, just plant half. So you have half for the following year and you don't lose it all in the drought. And then your neighbor hears that you did that, and he gets skittish too. He does the same thing. Suddenly, everybody in the kingdom sows half the wheat, and next year, surprise, surprise, we're all having to live off of half of what we should have. This is the self-fulfilling prophecy, the way that fear uh, locks us in from sowing. And there's this interesting verse in Ecclesiastes. It's actually a chapter that's about... Uh, In many ways, whether it's financial or spiritual, just being a bold investor, going in different ventures, doing different things. And they talk about this skittishness of planting in 11 verse 4. It says, uh, whoever watches the wind will not plant and whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. It's a picture of someone trying to read the weather and, and, and worrying about it so much that they don't actually invest in what's ahead of them. My point is, is that fear can make us shrink back. And it makes it to where we don't sew. We kind of wait and see, or we want to freeze, hunker down, get down into the bunker. I would imagine in the years that Jerusalem has spent under siege, when it was surrounded and they had nothing but one tiny little stream to live off of, people probably weren't starting new businesses. I would be surprised if anyone got married. It was probably just a thing of like, get through the day and survive. I bring this up because we are heading into a time where it becomes more and more apparent that the church has always been a pilgrim in this world, that this is not a place where we always get along with culture. Culture is shifting, and we're being reminded that from the time it started, the church has never checked off the boxes of the world around us, where they're happy with what we teach, what we believe, what we don't believe, and... Uh, it can be very nerve-wracking, discouraging of where are we going? What's it going to be like in the future? We get fears of, of how am I going to raise my kids in this world or how, what's going to happen in the generations after me? Is this? It feels to some of us like the end. And then enters the book of Joshua. And this is our series we're going to be starting today. Joshua is an incredible book because it's a book about Uh, The kingdom of Israel expanding under incredibly uncertain times. When they are pilgrims themselves, they have no major cities. They begin this incredible conquest. God promised the land to them, and they've never owned it civilly. They've never controlled it. It was promised to ancient ancestors hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before this moment. And they believed that God would give it to them, that it would be a place that God's plans would take place, where redemption would take place, that it would be a critical thing that through those people, all would be blessed. And we come to Joshua, and it's this point that is so critical in Scripture, because now there is a grand promise that's going to be fulfilled. God has called this generation to go make it happen. It's time to conquer and to take the land. And they do so being one of the most uh, anemic, young, discouraged generations that you could start out with. It starts with Moses' death. There's a verse in Joshua that commemorates the life of Moses. And it says that no one has ever been like him before and no one has come like him afterward. And that's really what he was like to them. He was like this incredible father, this thing that, that they were nothing but slaves living in slave quarters that were drawn together as a nation, given one central law. They went from illiterate slaves to people who had the law, had scripture, had uh, worship, had practice, had things that govern their lives. You know, as, I think as Christians, we read the law and it sounds so brutal. It sounds so extreme that it almost makes you nervous reading it. You know, you you could get killed for disobeying your parents. Like, it's a little intense. Uh, But I think about when David writes about the law, he loves it. It meant so much to him. Because in this lost world of barbarism, they're given this incredible law that raises them up from the muck. When the Lord talks about this moment as he transitions them from slavery to a people of the law, people of God. He refers to it in Ezekiel like taking a a naked baby covered in afterbirth out of mud, combing the mud out, washing their hair, getting them dressed. It is a grand transition moment. And yet with all this, uh, they've lost the man that led them in this. He was this Catalyst moment, this critical person that, they've, that they have missed ever since, to where, honestly, he is without a rival uh, until he is finally surpassed by Christ. To where they said, again, he doesn't know Moses, and Jesus said, if you knew Moses, you would know me. If you understood him, if you got him, he's such a critical figure, and he passes. It's also amazing to think that uh, we won't get to it today, but when they cross the Jordan miraculously and they get to the other side, that's when the manna stops. Meaning that until that time, and they ate the food on the other side of the Jordan, they were being fed miraculously every morning. From food that means in Hebrew, what is it? They didn't even know. This is like starting a new business when you're living paycheck to paycheck. It's a tough place to be. And yet they are one of the most famously courageous generations in Scripture. Israel's history can be rather tragic. It can be a tough one where they have little moments when they're good. And this is one of them. This is one of those great moments. I think it's worth it to think about their courage and where they were in, how discouraging it was, how difficult it was that they were going to go conquer people with cities and walls and weapons And they had no place to run to, and yet they had courage. So we're going to start with the book of Joshua. We're going to be in this for the next six weeks as we just kind of study our way through it. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, uh, Moses' aide, Moses, my servant is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give them to the Israelites. What's amazing is, is the, the pickup of this story, for one thing, is interesting. A lot of the books begin with intro. This one starts right up. It seems to assume you've read Deuteronomy. It's, a, it, it's, one, it's like one of those sequels that just picks up where the last movie picked off, no intro. Uh, and it takes off right at the transition point. And it's the, it starts with addressing that first great anxiety. Moses is dead. And Joshua is selected. What's amazing is that as this transition takes place, it gets something more clear to them. It's really easy for us, I think, to think of uh, people that did stuff for God as doing the thing and not just doing it on God's behalf. People get uh, converted to, to their faith in God at a Billy Graham crusade, and suddenly they say things like, oh, Billy Graham led me to Christ, could, could change over time to Billy Graham saved me. And we can give honor and glory to things that it should not be, And we do know that Moses failed to be worthy of this task, but it also happens at a critical point that when it switches from Moses to Joshua, it becomes clear, Moses is not the land giver. God is the land giver. We can forget that it's always been God and that transitions can take place. Things can change. Times can change. Culture can shift and God is still God. I had a very hard time emotionally when our denomination Foursquare sold Camp Crestview in Corbett. We've had Camp Crestview since, I think since the 60s. Camps have been there. You've got pastors that are retiring that gave their life to Jesus in the chapel. Uh, I was called to ministry on the field out there at, at Crestview. there's just, it's just, you meet people and you're just like, wow, Crestview was this grand pipeway that just fed all this stuff and it's gone. And the people that bought it made it so nice, we'll never afford to go back. It is fancy now. And I, I, I had a hard time just like, what have we done to ourselves? But you know, I've been to, I, when I was a youth pastor when they sold it, and we went to uh, other camps, and you know what? God was there too. There were terrible campuses, but God was there. Nothing compares to Crestview's campus, but God was there, still calling, still doing his work in different times. I think it's really important to remember uh, from this part, this transition and this faith in God, in this very trying time, that we remember that things can change and things can shift, and we need to remember that God is going to be in the transition and through it. Culture's shifting, America's changing places are changing. And God is still in the midst of it, still working, still doing his will. God is immune to cultural change, and his gospel is immune to cultural change. It's seen it all. The future is going to reshape often, but God will always be at work within it. So if you're looking for a solid rock, look to God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Gideon, David, Hezekiah, Jeremiah, the God of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Paul, the God of Irenaeus, Augustine, Martin Luther, John Wesley, Charles Spurgeon, Amy Semple McPherson, and Billy Graham. Because throughout history, God has been with his saints in every cultural climate. Whether they are being fed to lions in the Colosseum, whether they're being invited to pray for presidents, God's been with that church, and he's been with his people, and he's been with his saints. God will remain in control of a changing world. The Lord goes on to speak. I will give you every place you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert uh, to Lebanon, from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Sorry, I I think I was going to get emotional today. If you guys are at the Christmas Eve service, you've seen the worst of it. I shall never weep again as I did at the Christmas Eve service. This is my covenant to you. (laughs) Have you ever seen those art pieces where it's a bottle with a ship inside of it? And the art piece, it's all built around wonder. The ship could be remarkable, unremarkable. It doesn't matter. What matters is the wonder that we look at it and we think, how did they get that in there? That's what the artist wants. You think, how did they get that in there? I have a similar question. How does God put courage in human hearts? How does he fit something in there? He speaks it with promises. Promises are the way that God gets courage into human hearts. The promise is listed to Joshua is the land listed where it'll be. It's a promise of total victory that no one will stand against them, and it's a promise of God's favor and His presence. Romans ten seven says faith comes by hearing, and hearing from a word of Christ. That God speaks His promises to us, it produces faith, confidence, and courage. It's spoken to us in promises, promises of salvation, promises of hope, promises of peace, that Jesus will not abandon us, God will not give up, and that the church and his kingdom and God his himself destined for complete victory. Uncertaining t- or uncertain times... Uh, And threatening moments, these are times to dwell on the promises of God, to think them over, to remember them often, to let our thoughts be disciplined to remember them often, that our habits would be disciplined to remember them often, because courage gets drawn up from such a well as that. As we remember promises, that's how the ship gets in the bottle, that's how courage gets within us, is when we remember and recount and hear the promises, nothing God said here was new except that it was very specific to Joshua. I won't leave you like I did Moses. But the land, their victory to take it, old promises, but worth remembering on the day before you send spies back. Spies were sent the first time and everybody melted in fear. Spies were sent the second time and that generation was different. And they said the people are melting in fear because of us. I want to reread verse 5. We're going to finish off reading verse six as well. No one will be able to stand against you, the Lord said, all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Joshua's confidence is all wrapped up in who he belongs to. His confidence in who he is, it comes from who he belongs to. He's actually the first person in Scripture to be renamed with Jehovah in his name. In Deuteronomy, his, his name is, is Hosea, and he's, his name is changed to Joshua. And he's the first person, because Yahweh was a name that was communicated first to Moses, and so he is the one that renames Joshua before he's sent out on a, con- on a conquering mission. Yahweh is believed to be the sound of breathing. Yahweh. It's an apt name to give to the God who gives us breath. That when he creates mankind, he breathes into dirt and they become alive. Pagan temples uh, dedicated to pagan gods were filled with idols. Idols that were carved up and engraved and forged to look like that God. God. Do you know why idols are forbidden in the scripture? Old Testament, New Testament, they are forbidden. And the reason they are is because humanity is the living idols of God, graven in his image, living in the temple of his creation, made after him. And because he is a living God, therefore, his idols are living, made to be like him. And the same way that an idol would look like would be a connection point between the deity and everything else. So humanity gives honor to God and should be positioned to God that in our image, the way we look, the way we're engraved, our nature, the way that we exist. Even in a triune being, body, soul, and spirit, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we are made after his image. But Joshua, Joshua is different. I mean, he's He's especially different. A promise of what all people are called to be. He's marked by God and God's name is on him. He's like an idol that has been redeemed. Not like the other human idols that go around and they have forgotten God. They think that the glory that's on them and their graven image is about themselves. Joshua is marked, has his name on him, his calling on him. And he does not fail in his calling to honor God, the one he's modeled after. He knows God's name. He bears it, and God has called him. He's marked by God. He's sutured to God, connected entirely, and God will not leave him. No matter whether Joshua succeeds or fails, God is with him. In his worst moments, in his best, he's with him. Joshua's confidence comes from that promise, I will be with you. Joshua has military experience. He's been victorious. This isn't the cause for his confidence. He has experience because he has been second in command of this nation from the time he left Egypt. And this isn't the cause for his confidence. He's confident in the God God that took him under his wing. It's a model of us, isn't it? We are marked by Christ, belonging to him that in a world of idols that have gone astray, that live walking every day, setting every foot in his temple, do not recognize who they are, don't recognize who they're modeled after, and won't give glory to God. When Paul lays out his theology in Romans, he talks about the dissension of humanity and how they fall. And he summarizes with, they refuse to give thanks and give glory to God. They refuse to be living image bearers of God. And we are those with the connection reestablished, with the name bearing on us. They're told to put, everywhere that they put their feet, it says in that promise, uh, God will give to them. And why is that? Because whether they cross it or not, and before they cross it and afterward, God already owned the promised land. It was his land. So where their foot treads, it was gonna be given to them. Creation is God's temple. Every inch of it. Everywhere we walk is his place, and we are through him because those who turn, those who give him honor, those who, who say yes to the son, who are restored miraculously, are given an incredible gift to be sutured back in, to bear that name once again, to be that living image once again, and to inherit what he has for us. Our confidence cannot be in history or, or culture changing. Of what, if, what if politically things keep changing? Or what if, what if they come back to the way they were 50 years ago? This cannot be our confidence. It has to be in God alone. We are and always have been pilgrims in this place. We were pilgrims when, when we were uh, first coming off of plains in Mesopotamia and didn't even become Europeans yet for most of us that are European. Pilgrims, when we crossed the Atlantic and came here, we are pilgrims. But we are greater than more than foremost anything spiritual pilgrims, those of us in the church. Imagine for a moment you're on a road trip, and the car you're driving has a busted gas gauge. You have no idea how much fuel is in the tank. You don't know where the next gas station is. How relaxed are you? I'm going to up the ante. You're in the desert. How relaxed are you? not very. You wouldn't notice anything. You could be driving through beautiful terrain, a kind of road trip you'd really enjoy, but you won't enjoy it the way you would if you knew how much fuel was in that stupid tank. You wouldn't stop for anything. You wouldn't pull over to look at anything. You'd be constantly wondering, when is this thing going to putter to a stop? I want to tell you, by his promises, God has told us that the fuel tank in this kingdom and his plans is not going to run out. That this is not going to end. We do not have to live like, what if everything I put my faith in the kingdom of God, what if things go so poorly for us? God said it will not run out, that it will endure to the end that he will redeem his creation. The darkness does not prevail. So let's drive courageously, enjoying it, being, not being afraid to take the stops along the way, not being, able, not being afraid to see, to go further, to invest, to live a life, knowing that ahead of us in this kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the economy is good and it is a good time to sow. It is a good time to build. This doesn't mean that all your personal plans are going to work out perfectly. They do work, I, I found that there are way too many testimonies of God showing up incredibly faithful in people's finances and in their lives to where it's clearly a thing that I know he does, and he does it frequently, and it's purely a loving kindness. That is just a loving kindness. But he has sworn himself to us on contract. The kingdom of heaven will not fail. It will not fall apart. We will prevail. His church is going to be victorious. So if it's going to be victorious, then be about the kingdom's work. Be about what God is doing in all times, in any season, any climate, any, any political, any cultural climate, in good times and bad, because our God is the eternal promise keeper. He's redeeming his creation, and he will not fail. We can think, I, I, I feel so pressed in on all sides. I feel like I have to not even say what I, what I believe in my faith online. I, can, I have to hide my opinions from other people. What do you mean I'm supposed to share my faith? What if someone asks me the question I'm afraid of, that I don't want to answer? What do you mean I'm supposed to mentor the next generation? What on earth am I sending them into? You're sending them into a kingdom that isn't going to fail, that will expand, that has proven again and again and again it is immune to persecution, that it grows in all times, and it will endure. It is a good time to invest in the kingdom of heaven, to live out this life of faith courageously, boldly with strength, with everything in us, because now is not a time to shrink back and be afraid that things may go against us or go against what we are planning. The kingdom of heaven is with us now. And our confidence isn't based on where culture's heading. It's not based on what we're hearing from our friends. It is based on who we are sutured with, who we're connected to and who we're tied with. So let's dwell on those promises that that ship of courage could be built within us. Lord, this morning, I ask for your encouragement to be with us. That God, if we, have, if we have let our eyes fall too far down, too earthly set, that we have felt trapped in on all sides, God, give us faith. There was once a people without walls, without allies, who were unafraid to go and do your will, who lost all of everything that they had known, what had been comfortable to them? Yet they knew you were still with them. In the midst of a transition, you empowered them. Lord, empower us. Let us recall what you've said to us: that our hope in you is secure. The hope of our children is secure. The hope of the next generation—it is secure. So, Lord, with confidence and with courage and with strength, let us build knowing that what we plant today is going to grow. It will be given life. It will be made whole. Lord, bless the work of our hands. Bless us as we share faith, as we invite people into this house of faith, as we spread, as we share our hope, as we mentor those with questions. Give us confidence that the time is now. The fields are ripe for the harvest. Bring us home in confidence in you and help us to be those who bear your image. In your name we pray, amen.